Amen. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I, love, I love Christmas music. I love the messages of the songs. And uh, it seems to come and go so quickly. Uh, one, one month of the year. I'm thankful that, uh, that we have the, the opportunity this morning to consider our response to Christmas. That's uh, the title of this morning's, uh, this morning's message is for you and I to consider, consider our response to, uh, to Christmas and to this, to this time of year. And as you and I, as we enter into the week of Christmas, we are sure to hear the usual acknowledgments of Jesus in His infancy. Much of the secular world can tolerate and even celebrate Christ as a helpless newborn baby. They can embrace the, the humility of His makeshift maternity ward and other familiar imagery that come along with the incarnation of Christ. But it's just as long as the baby stays in a manger and they never are forced to deal with the man that that Jesus became. But the details of Christ's life and work, they actually can't be, they can't be subdivided. How you respond to Jesus Christ, even in His infancy, sets the course for all of your eternity. Nothing this morning is more important than what you and I consider our response to Christmas and to that baby in the manger some 2,000 years ago. In essence, there are only three ways to respond to Jesus. And all three of them are depicted in the aftermath of His birth. And we're going to begin reading that in verse number 1 of Matthew chapter number 2. Follow along there in your Bibles. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it was written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." Even Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when he had found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream 
that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And so this morning we're going to look at the responses of Christmas. And really, it is either going to be your response or mine. We will find ourselves in one of the three. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we, we come before you and Lord, our hearts are full from worship. God, we rejoice with uh, what you're doing uh, through the Garland family in our local state prisons and uh, just the lives that are being changed, the testimonies of true sanctification that's going on through uh, just the repentance and salvation in these people's lives. And God, now as we look into your word and we see the responses to to Christ may we may we be honest this morning may we be willing to open up our hearts open up our eyes and minds and begin to ponder where where we are at on this map that we will look at of responses and uh, God I pray that you'd work in our heart I pray that Lord I would only say that which would be pleasing unto you Lord I desire only to be used for your honor and for your glory. I pray that you'd be with our children right now as they are over in their classes learning about the Christmas story and doing a craft that, that, that it would mean more to them than just a present as well as us adults that get wrapped up in the wonderful traditions of Christmas. Nothing wrong in and of, them, of, of themselves. But God, may we, may we truly see what the meaning of Christmas is all about this week. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our brief text, we see examples of three basic responses that men made to Jesus while He was here on earth. And the same three responses that these men throughout history, that that you and I actually have made throughout the history um, uh, uh, since He's come. Some, like Herod, are hostile toward Him. Some, like the chief priests and scribes, they're simply indifferent towards Him. And then there are, like the Magi, those that worship Him. And this morning, we're going to consider all three of those responses and how they are mirrored in the way that modern men and women react to Jesus Christ. And so we will start off with the response of hostility. The response of hostility. Rome, as we have learned historically, they appointed Herod as the king of the Jews. He was a very clever and capable warrior. He was an amazing orator. He was an excellent diplomat. Herod was also very cruel. He was very merciless in the way that he led. He was incredibly jealous. He was suspicious of anyone that would potentially take, the, uh, take his, his throne away from him, his power Fearing his potential threat, he had the high priest, who was his wife's brother, drowned. And then at his memorial, Herod pretended to cry. He then had his very own wife killed herself, and then her mother, and then three of his own sons. And so Herod, he, he held to the, to the title of king, but like any occupying force, he knew that his power his kingdomship so to speak was it was always under threat it was always could potentially be undermined and so clearly such 
desperation to maintain authority bred the paranoia that Herod brought into his leadership. Who knows how many people lost their lives because they presented a threat to Herod. We don't know. But it's no wonder then that the Magi's inquiry concerning the birth of the king of the Jews produced such hostility from Israel's earthly ruler. Herod's first response to the news of the Magi we see was in verse number 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now obviously, Herod connected the king of the Jews with the Messiah. He connected the king of the Jews uh, with the Christ. Though Herod was not himself a Jew, he knew Jewish beliefs and the customs. He, He knew them rather well. The current messianic expectation of most of the Jews at that time was more of a political ruler, more of a military might of a man that was going to come in, and they thought of that more than there were than Christ being a spiritual savior. And so the Magi's news and the information that he gleaned from the Jewish religious leaders set the wheels of his self-defense into motion. And as Herod received the information that he wanted from the Jewish leaders, it says in verse number 7, then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star should appear. See, his concern was not the time of the star's appearance, nor its meaning or Uh, nor its significance. It was only about his appearance. Excuse me. It was enough for him to know only that the sign pointed to the birth of someone who was now going to threaten him and his position. And so the time of the star's appearance would indicate the age of the child and where he would be born. And so then Herod, he instructed the Magi to proceed with their mission and then report their findings as they returned home. And hypocritically, he gave them a good sounding reason of, hey, hey, I want you to come home, verse number 8, that I may come and I may worship Him also. If we just kind of ended the text right there, you would think, hey, hey, th- th- this, is a, this is a great response from Herod. But as you continue down and you can even look through history, you know that that wasn't the only, that wasn't the real reason why Herod wanted to know. His ultimate purpose was so he could bring about ultimate just hostility upon Jesus Christ and really to the, to the Jews. And his murderous streak came once again. Not only did he kill his wife and, all of, and her brother and his mother and all of his sons, it says in verse number 12, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And so these magi, these, these wise men, they, 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 they didn't come back to Herod. And this, of course, enraged Herod. And he ultimately, it says in verse number 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. 
And so Herod was so afraid of someone taking his, taking his power that he literally slaughtered every single two-year-old, the potential age that Christ could have been at this time, every single two-year-old in Bethlehem and the neighboring cities all around. But you and I know God's divine purposes, they're, they're never stopped. Because God prior to this, through an angel, spoke to Mary and Joseph and He had them flee to Egypt. And they were not, of course, a part of this massive slaughter that went in during this time of Jesus' birth. And so, Herod's deadly actions could not stop Christ's reign as the King of Kings. Reading how Herod was, you're likely thankful to live in a more civilized time. But you and I, let's not forget the fierce violence against Christians across most of the rest of the world. Publicly believing in Christ is enough to cost you your job, your home, and even your life in parts of the world today. In fact, it seems that the hostility against God and His people is increasing worldwide, rapidly advancing into countries that once prize themselves as having religious freedom. Even in the relative calm of our Western society, so to speak, the biblical account of Christ's birth is still met with aggressive hostility by people who prefer to rule their own lives. To rule their own destinies. Like Herod, many today are insecure about the threat that Jesus poses to their self-importance and self-determination. They want nothing to do with Christ and they work to literally stamp out His influence in the world in which we live. I believe you're seeing that before your eyes in the country that we so love here in the U.S. You have probably encountered people who attempt to discredit the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You probably work with coworkers that think you're crazy for going to church. Think you're crazy for believing as Rick in like a 10-minute period so beautifully laid out a virgin birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. Others aggressively work to banish any discussion of Him. Most of you at your workplace, you can't even talk about Him unless it's brought up by somebody else. And uh, any hint of the Gospel truth is being stamped out of public discourse. And in fact, while, the, while it lacks the bloody violence of Herod's genocide, much of the world today continues in the spirit of his efforts to extinguish Christ's influence and authority. And so this year, I want, you to, I want you to be aware of the unrepentant world that may pay a little bit of lip service to a baby in a manger and might be kind of okay with the, with the nuances of a manger and shepherds and, and all of those different types of nativity type scenes. But, but know that at the heart of an unrepentant world, there is great hostility to the one that you hold so dear as your Savior. And so you see in Matthew 2 the response of hostility, and I pray that that would never be your response. I pray that there would be a difference in your heart. But that brings us to a second response, and that is the response of indifference. Do you remember what it was like when you were a child? 
when you heard the news that your grandparents were coming? And if you were young enough, you couldn't really kind of connect, you know, the times and the days and all of that. And, and you, just, you just waited with, with ultimate anticipation. You just thought any moment of any day, grandma and grandpa are going to pop in the door. You remember those days? I remember them. Oh, I loved seeing my grandparents. That anticipation filled the day with all kinds of excitement. You might expect that all of Israel would have been similarly excited in the anticipation of the promised Messiah. Particularly those that knew. Particularly the religious leaders. Can I say this? Particularly the church. Particularly the ones that, that, that kind of would have had an understanding of what this quote-unquote season is all about. Those who would have been thoroughly acquainted with the prophecy that would have been regarding Christ's birth. But as you know the story, it wasn't the case. While the priests and the scribes knew that He was coming, they didn't live in any type of anticipation. In fact, Scripture shows us that they greeted the news of His arrival with kind of an apathetic indifference. Look at verse number 4. And when He had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, He demanded of them where Christ should be born. Notice what it says in verse number 5. And they said unto Him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Although they proved that they knew that his birth was predicted, and where it was even to be, most it was common knowledge among the Jews, they showed no belief or special interest in the announcement of the Magi that they had seen the star that was giving them the sign of that birth. Part of their indifference may have been due to the common misconceptions of how the king of the Jews was going to come in. They thought it was going to, again, again be a political or a, a, a warrior-type leader, and we know that is not how Christ came. He came with humility. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to not cause people to give their life for Him. Instead, He gave His life a ransom for many. And so, certainly you can understand some of the misconceptions that there were. But the Gospel makes it clear that the Jews anticipated a Messiah who was going to set them free from a Roman rule. And so with that, while Scripture doesn't explicitly reveal the motivation for their indifference, their response to Herod's inquiry proves that it was certainly not due to ignorance. Even the unbelieving, politicized, self-serving Jewish leaders recognized that God's Word clearly spoke of a literal, personal Messiah. They did not accept Him when He was born or when he preached or when they taught or when he died or when he gave his life and rose again three days later. And ultimately, they became his supreme enemies. Yet they acknowledged that the one predicted to come, that he was going to be sent by the Lord. And what was he going to be? He was going to, he was going to rule my people, Israel. They knew, but they didn't believe. Consequently, a few years later, their initial indifference to Jesus would ultimately become rejection and ultimately become hostility, just like Herod's original response was. Plenty of people today, they react to the news of Christ's birth with similar indifference. 
They might know the details of His incarnation, but they're utterly unmoved by the truth of His life and His sacrifice on behalf of our, uh, of our sins. Listen to me. Sometimes the church is unmoved. Sometimes we can sing about amazing words and we are unmoved. We can sit under the teaching and preaching of the Word of God and we are unmoved. Month after month, year after year, we can sit, but our hearts are like this. Indifferent. Praise God for salvation. Amen? Right? Praise God for a home in heaven. Amen. Praise God for no longer am I on my way to hell, but just the indifference, the, the blah of the Christian life. Others simply assume they can deal with Jesus on their terms. According to their timetable, they do not believe that they are in desperate need of a Savior, so they're indifferent to the redemption that He offers. No one stays totally indifferent to Christ, though. Some, like Herod, are immediately hateful, wanting to know nothing of God's way except how to attack and if possibly destroy it. Others, like the chief priests and scribes, they pay little, if any, attention to God and His way. What we know of God is they do not accept what they know of Him and they do not obey it. At most, He's given lip service. Can I encourage you not to give him lip service this week? Don't just give him lip service. Man, enjoy the week. Enjoy the traditions of Christmas. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the songs. Enjoy the lights. Enjoy opening up presents. Enjoy gift giving. Enjoy all of that. But don't be indifferent to the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. So we see the response of hostility, the response of indifference. Can I say thirdly, the response of worship? Who were these wise men? Well, we know, really, we don't know a lot about them. Uh, they're mysterious characters from the East. In fact, the familiar representation of them in the nativity scenes and Christmas plays normally are, they're entirely traditional and they're not necessarily biblically based oftentimes when you see them uh, around a nativity scene they're you know they're bringing gifts to a baby jesus that would not have been the case he would have been probably close to two years old i'm sorry to shatter all your nativity scenes you have at your house still enjoy those okay still put them up all right it's okay all right you're not committing this grievous sin by by putting that up but it's often based on tradition rather than uh, biblical knowledge. The only legitimate facts that we know about these particular magi are, are really only kind of given in our text here in Matthew. We're not told of their number. We know, we're told of three gifts, but we're not told of their number. We're not told of their names, their, their means of transportation to Palestine, or the specific country or countries in which they came from. The fact that they came from the east would have been assumed by most people in the New Testament times because the Magi were primarily known as the priestly political class of the um, Parthians who lived in east of Palestine. And so the Magi would have been masters of a variety of things, academics, um, science, as well as 
uh, religious disciplines. Because of their combined knowledge of science and agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult, their religious and political influence continued to grow until they became the most prominent and powerful group of advisors in the uh, Medo-Persian um, kind of Babylonian empire. It's, it's not strange that they were referred to as wise men. It is possible that the phrase that you hear in Daniel as well as in Esther of it's the law of the Medes and the Persians would have been from teachings of these magi. And so the influence of these individuals held in the ancient world put them in a position to kind of intersect with God's people and to intersect with His redemptive plan several centuries before they ever came to, uh, to, to Bethlehem. We learn from the book of Daniel that the Magi were among of the, the highest ranking officials in Babylon. And so because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, if you, if you, kinda, if you read through the book of Daniel, uh, you find that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he brought these wise men or these magi in to interpret his dream and they couldn't do it. And so ultimately Daniel comes before them and we see that in verse number 48 of Daniel 2. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all, notice this, the wise men of Babylon. He was able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Not time for that here this morning. You can study it on your own. We see in verse number 24, Therefore Daniel went in unto Arach, whom the king had ordained, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Why? Because they couldn't interpret the dream. But he went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. And so because of the great wisdom of, of Daniel, and because his successful nature of pleading for the lives of these individuals, Daniel became highly regarded among the Magi. He became highly regarded among what we often will call the wise men. And so because of his position and because of his regard over them, it is believed by historians that that is where the desire for these wise men, for the desire of these magi to learn about this star, to learn about this Savior being born. And it is believed that they would have been, you know, saved Gentiles. They would have believed in this Christ. And so often, they often believed that there were several Jews that kind of stayed after the exile out of Babylon. And so Scripture does not tell us everything these wise men knew about the king. But here's what we do know. I gave you a little bit of history with that for a reason. Here's what we do know. They came to worship him. These were God-fearing Gentiles, and their enthusiasm is a condemning contrast to the apathetic indifference of the religious crowd. Let me for a second here get on a soapbox. It's not even in my notes, and the Holy Spirit's telling me to say it right now. There often is a huge difference between a new believer 
and someone that's been saved for decades. There often is. And let's be cautious of that. Let's open up our hearts. Do we still worship? Or is it just, eh, that's just what we do. Hey, let's kind of get through with that because I love the preaching. Hey, I love preaching too. I get to do it every Sunday. Thank you for allowing me to do that. But these God-fearing Gentiles had gotten a little bit of knowledge over the course of their intermingling with Daniel. And now they're coming and they're following this star. Why? Because they want they came to worship. And we know that they they brought their they brought their gifts. Their gifts. And as they were coming, oh man, Matthew 2 2 is amazing. It says here, saying, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have been, we've seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Listen, the phrase in the Greek of, is amazing. The word saying there, saying, is so beautiful. It is in, I don't want to bore you with this, but I got to tell you this. It is in, it's a present participle. Here's what it means it's emphasizing continual action. It suggests that what happened was is when they came to town, they were questioning whoever they met. Because listen, as foreigners, they would have just assumed that everybody in Bethlehem would have known where he was at. And so they're coming in and they're continually asking. And they're like, hey, hey, do you know where this, do you know where this where Jesus is? Do you know where the Messiah is? Do you know where the where, where the King of the Jews is? Oh, no, you don't? Okay. All right, hey, do you know where the King of the Jews is? And they were saying it over and over and over again. The people didn't know. Because they were indifferent. They were indifferent. These travelers from the east had come to Palestine with but one purpose to find the one born King of the Jews and to worship Him. I'm not trying to be mean this morning. But a lot hasn't changed in 2019. Sometimes we get so caught up in what we think we know and how we think we live and how we look at a dying world. And we, you know what we often do? We often try to separate ourselves from that rather than building a bridge to it. And they're saying, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Over and over and over again saying it. They had limited spiritual light, these wise men, yet they immediately recognized God's light when it shone on them. They were genuine seeking hearts and hearts that the Lord promises that are never going to fail to find Him. Jeremiah 29.13 And ye shall seek Me and find Me when ye shall search for Me with all your heart. These foreigners were the only ones who reacted to the news of Christ's birth correctly. These wise men, driven by nothing more than hope, nothing more than faith, knew that they were not merely looking for an infant. They were looking for a newborn king. They were looking for one that was worthy of adoration, as we just sang. Worthy of worship as the, uh, the King of Kings. Listen, there, there, there's plenty of people like Herod. There's plenty of people that, that are like the scribes today, ready to attack Christ, ready to overlook Him altogether, even in the days ahead. 
as the world allegedly celebrates His birth, the truth of His person and work, they're always under assault. And you and I, why preach a message like this, Ryan? Why? Because I want you to consider your response. I want you to, I want myself to consider this response. Because the world's getting ready to celebrate. And I want you to enjoy the traditions. Some of you even enjoy some fruitcake for me, okay? I got to get it in there every message in December. You know that. But I think you and I, we, we need to foster the Magi's attitude. We need to foster the Magi's perspective and not be distracted by the familiarity of the Christmas season. That baby, he didn't stay a baby. And as the wise men rightly said, he was and is our king. And I want you as I close, if you had to summarize the Christmas story in one word, what would you choose? Now your word will have to capture what the story points to as the core of human need and the way that God would meet that need. Don't say it out loud, but do you have that word in mind? If you had to think, if you had to summarize the Christmas story in one word, maybe you're thinking that it's not possible to summarize such a the greatest story that's ever been told that this world has ever known. How can you how can you summarize that in one word? But I think you can. I want you to try and consider one lovely, amazing, history-changing, and eternally significant word. It doesn't take paragraphs. It doesn't take volumes and page after page to communicate how God chose to respond to the outrageous rebellion of Adam and Eve and, oh, by the way, the continued rebellion by you and myself. God's response to the sin of people against His rightful and holy rule can be captured in a single word. I wonder what you thought of. Have you maybe thought of the word grace but the single word that captures God's response to sin even better than the word grace it's not a theological word at all it's a name and the name is Jesus it encapsulates everything that Christmas is this season in the midst of all of the celebrations in the midst of the gift giving, be careful to remember that at the center of what we celebrate is one game-changing, hope-giving reality. And that grace, that it is a person. And His name is Jesus. This Christmas, can you take every opportunity to adore, every opportunity to worship, and every opportunity to celebrate Him your response to Christmas. I doubt anybody's hostile to him in here. But are we indifferent? Our response ought to be one of worship, of adoration. Enjoy the traditions. Please do. But realize those traditions simply point to what the season is really about. And that is Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
I wonder if the Holy Spirit of God put a finger on your heart and said, you've been indifferent. Would you confess that before the Lord right now?